on time, ready for fun. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast, a CastBox original show. I'm Austin Knight, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Matthew Howes-Barbie. Hey, Austin, and hey to everyone listening. Yeah, so today's episode, believe it or not, is actually our last episode of Series 2. Wow. And with that, yeah, we'll also be saying goodbye to our partnership with CastBox. So we just want to take a moment to say a big thank you to the CastBox team for all of their support. It's really been great to put together a whole series of this podcast together. It was an awesome project that we did. Yeah, it's been great. And um don't worry, the end of this series, like we'll be taking a one week break and then we will be back with some new, amazing, even better series three content. It'll be business as usual on our end. So for you as a listener, we're going to be bringing in more great guests. We've actually got some really exciting guests lined up for some interviews in the next couple of weeks as well. So stay tuned for that. And we'll be answering more of your burning questions. So, yeah, really excited to bring on some of these new guests that we've got lined up, though. Yeah. We're still waiting to hear back from Tim Berners-Lee, though. I know. Come on, Tim. Stop fixing the world for a moment, right? Get on our podcast. You're too busy doing good (laughs) stuff. Have a moment to fulfill the needs of Austin and Matt over here. (laughs) (laughs) it's also worth mentioning uh at this point just to plug our show that it would be a huge help to us if you take a couple minutes out of your day to leave us a rating or review if you have the time on itunes or whatever your favorite podcasting platform is this is the way that we reach more people so it means a lot to us yeah we're specifically addressing tim Berners-Lee with this in particular tim (laughs) if you could leave us a review and a rating that would be great but in all seriousness it would really help us if any of you could just hop in, leave us a quick review on the iTunes store or whatever podcasting platform you tend to tune into the show on. Also, if you don't want to miss out on any of the latest news in the blockchain space, in particular next week when you won't have the joys of listening to me and Austin, uh, you can actually sign up for our weekly newsletter. And just like the podcast, there's no ads, no crappy investment advice. No distractions. So all you need to do is sign up by going to thecoinoffering.com forward slash crypto dash news. Yep. So today we're going to have a deeper discussion around some news stories that have come up in the past week or so. And we're going to share some of our general thoughts on how we're seeing the blockchain space evolve. All right, let's do it. So the first story comes from Coinbase, and we've been talking a little bit about Coinbase over the past couple of episodes, actually, around some of their bundles, product feature, and listing some new tokens. I know they've just added ZRX from the ZeroX project into into Coinbase, but there's some slightly less optimistic stats and some news that's come out recently, hasn't there, Austin? Yeah, so we found out that Coinbase is shutting down its crypto index fund product, and they're shifting their focus to something that they've dubbed Coinbase Bundle. So they're kind of changing around their feature focus. But I think that one of the more interesting pieces of this is that it came out that 
Coinbase, while they have a customer base of 20 million users, the active users on the platform are down by 80%. Yeah, that is a huge show. It's kind of crazy that they have 20 million users on that platform in such a short space of time. I'd be super interested to know how many they took on. I think, actually, I seem to remember now that they were bringing in something insane in November and December of last year during the real big boom. It was like a a yes. hundred thousand new users a day or something like that. It was- yep, that's that's what I remember. A hundred thousand new users a day is is what they were pulling in. So it kind of makes sense how they got to that huge twenty million user number. Mm-hmm. But to think that just since last December, the active users are are down by 80%, I think is fairly disconcerting. But it also plays in to some of our speculation uh, (laughs) that we've had in previous episodes around opening the floodgates for at least for applications for other currencies to be listed on the exchange and the sort of shakiness around the crypto index fund that we had previously (laughs) discussed. And what we speculate was that this was an attempt to drum up some business in the midst of a nasty down market where cryptocurrencies are no longer quite as sexy as they were (laughs) uh, when they were on CNBC several months ago. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And considering the amount of funding from private investment that Coinbase has taken on, I know from working with a lot of companies with private investment behind them and VC-backed companies that the emphasis very much is on net new users coming into the platform and month over month revenue growth and user growth in particular. So I'm sure that in all honesty, as soon as the market picks back up again, assuming that that will happen, Coinbase is user growth will continue to rapidly pick up because it still seems to be the go-to for most new users and people just getting started out within the crypto space, which we talked a lot about in series one as well, right? Yeah, I agree. Coinbase is the default. They're the incumbent. I think that the the real thing to think about is activity in general in the market happens. I would expect their active user, whether they're measuring daily active users or monthly active users, whatever that number is, I would expect it to go up again. I think of like myself, for example, I still very much consider myself a Coinbase customer, but I haven't actively used the platform for several months because I've taken all of my crypto out of Coinbase and I've placed it onto my ledger and I'm just, you know, watching the values tank. And there's no <laughs> there's no point in me like selling anything right now. And I don't really feel like buying anything either, you know, but as soon as something interesting starts to happen with the market, I'll very easily see myself going back to Coinbase and trading. It's just that right now is not a very interesting time to do that because the market is so one-sided. Right. And in very different news to this, so Fidelity Investments has launched a whole new company called Fidelity Digital Asset Services that will handle cryptocurrency custody and trade execution primarily for institutional investors. And this is huge news primarily because Fidelity... Uh, If you haven't heard of Fidelity, they're the fifth largest asset manager in the entire world, and they 
actually administer more than 7.2 trillion US dollars in client assets, which is a massive, massive announcement and move to make within the cryptocurrency space in particular, because we've been talking about this for quite some time now, Austin, right? It's like, when are we going to see widespread institutional investors coming in to this space and ultimately creating more and more investment within the space from these big players? So this seems to be a big move there. Yeah. Yeah, this is huge news. Of course, other crypto companies have debuted similar products, Mm -hmm. but Fidelity is really the first Wall Street incumbent to officially provide cryptocurrency solutions such as custody. So this is big to see to see such a traditional entity jump into this space. Abigail Johnson, the CEO of Fidelity, said, quote, our goal is to make digitally native assets such as Bitcoin more accessible to investors. We expect to continue investing and experimenting over the long term with ways to make this emerging asset class easier for our clients to understand and use. That's quite a statement. Yeah, it, it really is. I, I actually saw on Twitter today, just kind of before we were recording, one, I, I'm trying to remember who this was, but a billionaire who owns a crypto hedge fund has become Fidelity's, one of their first customers on their custodian product. And so that's already starting to happen. Uh, Fidelity obviously have a huge presence in Boston, Massachusetts, where I'm based. And I've actually been to a bunch of blockchain events over the past kind of 18 months. And there's always actually been someone from Fidelity there or around, whether they're doing like fireside talks or just simply attending these events. I've seen it a lot. And uh, I think they actually partnered up with MIT and their digital currency initiative at some point to run one of the big summits as well. So they're, they're doing a lot in this space. Yeah. I mean, I think it's generally just a fair statement to say that amazing things are happening in Boston in, in general related to the space with all of the like the fintech expertise that is there. And I, I know that like when I was living there, there was like such a, a huge sentiment around, you know, the financial institutions being dinosaurs and there's a need to innovate. And, you know, all of them were creating like these innovation labs and stuff like this. And I think that that's really what we're seeing this come out of is a desire to innovate and adopt new financial technology. The timing is, of course, a, a little weird. They've they've chosen to do this when the market has hit a real low. Yeah. But I think that this could be, once again, I mean, it takes time to develop a product like this. So it's very possible that they started development on this around like October or November of 2017, when it was very obvious that this technology was hitting the mainstream and had a lot of potential. And then, you know, just now, like nine or so months, nine, 10, 11 months later, which would be about what I would expect the release cycle to be for a product of this size and scale and magnitude. Mm -hmm. They're just now able to to release the product and the market isn't really as much of a factor in that decision. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that this is almost a little bit more deliberate. I'm purely speculating at this point, but I kind of feel that like with them making the decision to move in while the the market is at such a low point. I think, first of all, 
that cements their belief that there is a huge future for this space from an enormous financial institution. But I think it also makes a statement from them that ultimately they're looking for their clients to start making trades and investing in this space and potentially taking advantage of some of the low points that are happening right now, potentially to kind of maximize their gains in the future. Again, pure speculation, but I just feel like a company of Fidelity's size, I would be very surprised if this just was pure chance that they held off on launching until this point in the in the market but time will tell with that for sure yeah i think it's a fair perspective and at any rate what we know is that this opens up the opportunity for institutions like hedge funds endowments family even family offices you know Mm -hmm. small investment institutions to huge investment institutions to start playing in the crypto space, you know, beyond just like the small retail investors like me and you, frankly. Yeah. And when you start moving big money around, you know, money that's been around for a long time and is very intentional in how it's moved and it can actually fundamentally influence the market, that's that's an interesting dynamic, right? And Fidelity is opening up the opportunity for that dynamic to exist here. Yeah. And I and I think the the fact that they already work with something like 13,000 institutional clients. The the fact that Fidelity are backing this, investing a lot into this, I think will give a lot of confidence to some of their existing clients, and I'm sure as well, some new clients that they'll be tapping into as a whole new market of institutional investors will open up to them. But I think this does make a big signal that they're looking to invest in the space, they believe in the space, and I'm sure over the coming kind of six to 12 months, we're going to start hearing the name Fidelity Investments more and more and more within the blockchain space. Yep. So let's move on to a story now that we've both been discussing a lot over the past week, and it involves a secret investigation by the SEC into our favorite topic, (laughs) ICOs. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, yeah, the SEC has launched a private investigation into the way that several different blockchain projects have been raising money through ICOs. And what has kind of happened at the start of 2018, so there was there's a really interesting article that we will share around all of this in the show notes, but they sent out a ton of more information-seeking subpoenas at the start of the year, And now the SEC has returned to a bunch of these companies that they initially subpoenaed, and they've subpoenaed tons more, focusing primarily on those that have failed to properly ensure their token was sold exclusively to accredited investors. This can present a huge amount of problems for those projects, but... Also, when we think about some of these investigations, there's been a lot of speculation around like basically the SEC creating new regulations or updating existing regulations and then retrospectively punishing projects that ultimately really had very little guidance today. I mean, it's fair to say 
no one really has a clue what's going on in terms of like how the SEC is going to treat some of these ICO projects. I know there's been like SAFT proposals and all of these kind of different legislative frameworks that are very speculative at this stage. But with more than what, 20, 21 billion that's already been raised in ICO to date, that rings some alarm bells. And kind of one of the things we were talking about, Austin in particular, like, is it right for the SEC to be able to go through and retrospectively punish projects when they haven't necessarily been great at outlining the rules to begin with, right? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's certainly up for discussion. I would summarize my view on this by actually just pulling out three quotes from the article that we'll link to in the description. So the first quote says, in July 2017, the SEC announced that it viewed the tokens offered by the DAO and ICO that raised more than $150 million in 2016 as securities. Then, at a Senate hearing in February of 2018, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton said, quote, I believe every ICO I've seen is a security. So basically... The SEC made their first statement on their position on ICOs really in February of 2018. Keep that date in mind. The next quote, ICO funding, which began in 2014, mm -hmm. exploded in popularity last year as an alternative method to fund a cryptocurrency startup. And then the final quote, more than $20 billion has been raised in ICOs to date, but the ICO boom peaked in January 2018. So I think that the way that I would summarize this is that it's <laughs> ICOs have been happening since 2014. And the best that the SEC had was a quote from a Senate hearing in February of 2018, a month after the peak of the ICO boom. Okay. So imagine just, just to sort of like put this into a metaphor, right? Imagine that you're hosting a party. It starts at 8 p.m. and it ends at midnight. But at 12.05, your old friend Frank, we'll call him Frank, shows up. And he's like... <laughs> Classic Frank. Yeah. He's like, um, excuse me, uh, did you invite people that I approved of to this party? And then you're like, uh, hey, Frank, the party's kind of over. And, and then Frank's like, but you know that, that you're only allowed to invite people that I approve of to this party. And then you're like, well, uh, Frank, you know, like we, we checked your Facebook profile and we tried calling you to ask like what guests, you know, you preferred to intermingle with. And you just said that our party was too small for you to even care about. And then there's like this dude, he's like yelling from the back. He's like, you didn't even RSVP, man. <laughs> damn it, Frank. God damn it, Frank. <laughs> And, and, and then you're like, yeah, you know, if, if we knew that you were going to be here and like you had a preference for the people that would be invited to the party, we, we would have considered that when we were sending out, you know, invitations. And then Frank is like, well, I'm here now and I demand that this party only be conducted amongst people that I approve of. OK, now imagine that scenario, except the party occurred over the course of four years. That's a long party. <laughs> you're going to need stamina party, yeah. for that. 
<laughs> Frank is the SEC and he's a month late. And ironically, the people at the party are entrepreneurs that pay Frank's salary and enable him to exist. <laughs> That's essentially how <laughs> like how this whole thing has gone down. Frank is just coming in late and and wanting to apply rules that that even the people that were hosting the party in the first place, not only did they have no guidance on it, but when they asked Frank for guidance on it, he didn't care. So yeah. I think, you know, obviously I'm, I'm upset. <laughs> Frank has really impacted your happiness right now. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think this is a continuous conversation that, or a thread that's come up through many conversations we've had, both with guests on the podcast, where we've talked about regulation, when we've talked about ICOs and their funding, and also just generally around like some of the, the legal frameworks that exist right now. And I'm kind of torn in a number of ways. I, I know that from some of the legal professionals in the blockchain space that we've spoken to really have explained that it can be very tough to just spin up and create whole new legislation around an area like this, especially when you've still got new legislation that's only just being written for things like e-commerce online, which has existed for like 30 years nearly now. <laughs> but at the same time, there's being action taken against some of these projects. And on one hand, we make this argument where it's like, well, it's not fair and then uh, to the projects, but then you've also got the other piece where it's like the end consumer and how do we protect yeah. the consumer, which is ultimately what the SEC is there ideally to do. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real tough balance to strike. I, I have no good answers. I have many feelings <laughs> that are often very conflicting. But I think the one thing that I, I can't imagine many people disagreeing with, regardless of whether you are pro-regulation, anti-regulation, or sit somewhere in between, is that there just needs to be some clarity in at least the short term, and more importantly, consistency, right? Like, it feels like yeah. we're getting mixed statements at different times in the year from different bodies and authority uh, authorities. Bear in mind, the SEC is only overlooking the US. You, you can multiply this problem by like hundreds of times with all the different individual governing bodies that sometimes there are multiple of them that govern individual other countries as well. So it's, it's tough because I can appreciate the challenge the SEC has is like, where the, the common argument against regulation is it can stifle innovation, which I, I agree to a certain extent, but I also think there is a counter-argument that what's more important, innovation or protecting everyday citizens of your country. And that balance is tough. Oh, yeah, there has to be a balance there. I think that the frustrating part of this here is that the SEC is so big and bureaucratic that they couldn't provide or they didn't care to provide any initial guidance on this. And then now, because of their inability to provide that, they're still able to go back and say, well, you know, we're going to provide the guidance and regulation now and we're going to backwards apply that. So mm -hmm. even though we didn't 
provide any guidance to you all in the past, we still expected you all to read our minds <laughs> and, and abide <laughs> yeah. by these rules before they existed. And personally, I think, you know, if you are too big and bureaucratic and slow to come up with the regulation and show up to the party with your pre-approved guest list, but you don't even RSVP to the party, you don't get to come to the party <laughs> afterward and say who was supposed to attend and who wasn't. Preach. <laughs> uh, I hear you. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's good. I'm I'm eager to see. I'm sure that the coming weeks we're going to hear more and more about this investigation. And I'm sure similar to where you mentioned with the Dow, which was probably one of the biggest cases that we've had so far where the SEC has been involved. There's going to be more of those popping up as time goes on. We'll see how that shakes out. So, Moving on from the, the dramas of regulation, here is another really interesting story to talk through and more than anything, kind of interesting to role play and think about as a scenario that comes up. And this was an article that, that recently appeared in Fortune magazine and it talked about the whales of Bitcoin, right? A whale in this respect, if you're not familiar, is someone that holds a large amount of capital in particular in the context of bitcoin those that are some of the largest individual holders of bitcoin right now in in the world so yeah this came out when it was part of a study right yeah, this is super interesting. Uh, so chain analysis actually examined the 32 biggest whales, so the 32 largest capital holders, who together hold a little more than a million of the approximately 17 million bitcoins that have been mined to date so we're specifically talking about bitcoin whales here decentralization <laughs> <laughs> yeah man i mean geez that's outrageous uh, <laughs> Just to sort of bring this into perspective, the smallest whale in the sample holds around 12,000 Bitcoins, wow. while the biggest whale holds more than 85,000 Bitcoins, respectively, at today's value worth $75 million for the 12,000 and $541 million for the 85,000. Uh, that is insane. Pocket change. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my word. That is, uh, that is a huge, huge amount I, I believe that Satoshi is probably one of those. I don't think that we've seen any movement in Satoshi's wallet or wallets, should I say, as well. But there's also the the way that we'll link to the Fortune article that talks about this because, I mean, a lot of the more mass media, whether it's like Fortune, Forbes, Business Insider, when they're covering a lot of like blockchain and crypto stuff they they do sensationalize some of this stuff they they actually group these the, the various whales into different categories and i think one of them was just like criminals and it's like well yeah. can we can we just label people as criminals without real justification at this stage i think a lot of this kind of falls around silk road and also some of the big early bitcoin exchanges that were that were shut down in particular mount gox there's still a bunch of bitcoin whales that held a lot of those bitcoins arguably some of those have been used for criminal activity but i don't think we need to dive into that but though there was a piece around something like 1.3 billion dollars worth of bitcoin just being casually lost <laughs> Right within that article. Yeah, that was 
That was shocking. So this study broke out those 32 Bitcoin whale wallets into four categories, as Matt sort of alluded to earlier. Traders, miners and early adopters, lost wallets and criminal whales. And of course, the criminal one is a little bit contentious, like what that actually means. But they were going just based off of like these these wallets, these funds were amassed during times when Bitcoin was basically used for what they thought was criminal activity like Silk right. Road. But that's only three wallets together. That's $790 million, whatever. <laughs> uh, the, the lost wallets is the really interesting one because that was five wallets totaling to $1.3 billion. And as Matt and I were going through this, we were, we were thinking about this like, okay, these are whale wallets. So presumably these are early adopters, people that very well understand the the technology and and hopefully how to hold on to their funds mm-hmm. and still we have five major wallets totaling 1.3 billion dollars that have gone missing it begs a question like if a bitcoin whale can manage to lose their their wallet worth hundreds of millions of dollars then what is to prevent your average mom and pop Bitcoin trader, you know, playing with their retirement fund (laughs) from losing all of that as well. And I think that that lends itself to another question, which is like, is this a fundamental flaw of the technology? And, you know, in some ways, has the technology in its own attempt to make itself decentralized and secure also rendered itself risky and, and potentially useless and lost right. in some cases. I think this this intersects with a number of like ethical questions as well as like a, a lot of the time and we've talked about this so many times right it's like the trade-off of perceived extra security and convenience comes at a loss of control. <laughs> I don't know whether it would feel any better if the bank lost a hundred million of your 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 <laughs> money, or whether you lost it personally. I guess at least you'd have someone else to blame. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. and like maybe like insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other piece. But w- with that, the the fact that you have control, I think, is the the key in all of this. But that that piece to one side, right? Th- this this is what I find quite interesting. So first of all, how do we categorically know if something is truly lost? I'm unsure, right? Like, yeah. if we are able to categorically say this this Bitcoin wallet is has been lost, the the private keys are are gone, and we we no longer can restore them. Well, technically, let's just for hypothetical here, should we class that as being out of circulation? And if that is the case, does that impact the total? amount of bitcoins that account for its scarcity right we're saying that there's 17 million bitcoins that'll be released into circulation overall well if let's imagine half a million of those are lost for example that would then say okay well there's only 16.5 million now would that mean that actually we this should inflate the price of every other individual bitcoin and it comes into an interesting kind of dilemma there and similarly, to, to follow on from that, we talked a bit about this previously where there was the, the situation where the government actually confiscated 
uh, the U.S. government had, has confiscated bitcoins before. If you if you listen to the show regularly, you'll know we talked about that. I think two or three episodes ago, and this was the case when they shut down Silk Road. They confiscated all of Ross Ulbricht's Bitcoin, the allegedly Dread Pirate Roberts, right? And should that have at the time been considered out of circulation, and should it have inflated Bitcoin? And then when they released it back into circulation, should there have been some kind of deflationary effect? I this, this is above my pay grade, but I think it's an interesting thought process for us to explore with a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a great thought exercise. And I think there's another question, which is like, you know, I mean, we have all of these pre-existing financial institutions and precedents around this type of thing, right? Like this problem is not new. It's it's happened with fiat currency for as long as fiat currency has existed. So you could say like, well, you know, if I have like a hundred dollar bill and I'm holding that hundred dollar bill and it just blows away in the wind and it, it you know, gets shredded or just disappears or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's fully lost. Uh, is that considered out of circulation? I think the answer would be no, because theoretically somebody else could pick it up or find it or, you know, maybe you find it again. Maybe you accidentally buried some money in your backyard and forgot about it. And it's like, oh, for this period of time, it's lost. But then all of a sudden you remember that you buried it there and, and you can dig it up and use it again. I think the same thing could like theoretically happen with a lost Bitcoin wallet where, mm-hmm. you know, we, we think that these whales wallets are lost, but in the event that they are found again, those funds should be part of the market. Now, it is more interesting when you ask about confisc- like officially confiscated funds. Right. I don't know what the precedent is there with like USD, for example, but I, I do, you know, I wonder like, if the U.S. government confiscates like a drug lord's bank account or, you know, all of the cash that they had in their house or something like that, and that becomes property of the U.S. government, does that go out of circulation? Do they update the the number of USD that is in circulation mm. at the time? I'm, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I imagine that would be a major undertaking. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I have no idea. And I think this is where we could bring in someone with much better economic knowledge around some of this as well as like legislative knowledge that we could chat to in series three i think it also these kind of questions i i have heard come up before around the talks within privacy coins right because when you think about the idea of being able to specifically like confiscate cryptocurrency well it's a lot tougher to do that when you have privacy coins like, let's say, just using two examples, Monero or Zcash, right, where they have stealth addresses. So it's much more difficult to be able to actually know who owns those. So it's tougher for government bodies or any kind of entity to confiscate those funds. And more importantly, is completely anonymized, to be able to isolate out which individual coin is confiscated because there is a stealth address attached to it. I think actually privacy coins is something that we will definitely dig into in series three and and maybe get someone from either the Zcash or Monero or another privacy project in to to chat through a lot of this because I know they've probably got some pretty strong opinions. So if you're listening to the show, make sure you reach out to us. We'd love to have you come on and chat a bit more about this stuff. Yeah. 
One more interesting piece from the study that is pertinent to some of the discussions that we had in series one about whales that I think is worth mentioning is that according to chain analysis and their economist, Kim Grauer, who was part of this analysis, uh, contrary to popular perception, those trader whales, that, that first group of trader whales that I was talking about, that have typically been buyers and not sellers when Bitcoin's price dips, there's no evidence of them acting in concert, which I know is something that we were a little bit worried about. Like, you know, if there are these whales that have so much capital and they have the power to move so much of the market at once, does that mean that this entire thing is actually built on shaky legs that could be taken out by a few choice individuals at once? At least so far, it seems that these whales aren't acting together and manipulating prices, as some people would speculate, which I think is a very, very interesting take on this. Yeah. And then this kind of comes back to the conversation we had in our episode where we talked about the Bitcoin whale, where his wallet or her wallet became active all of a sudden. And there was that huge Reddit thread where people were trying to piece together who the Bitcoin whale was, uh, which was super interesting. But for me, when I think about this is relying on the good intentions of individuals generally worries me as you take Absolutely. a look through history. <laughs> uh, yeah. we, we haven't always had the best intentions laid upon humanity. And with more than one in 17 million Bitcoins being owned by 32 of the, the largest whales, that is a huge amount of power uh, that potentially could be flexed and used in a malicious way. Not to say that it will, but this is a constant thread that we've brought up a lot is like truly how decentralized are many of these major projects. And I think that's a good note for us to wrap things up. There's a lot for us to explore in the next season. And just from both me and Austin, we we really truly do hope that you've enjoyed Uh, both this episode but the whole of the second series if you haven't caught up on some of our previous episodes i would highly recommend that you go back through we've got a big chunk of foundational knowledge around blockchain in series one and a ton of uh, i i really do think we spoke to some fantastic guests within this series and there's been some great insights that they've shared but rest assured we'll be back rested and refreshed in two weeks time with some amazing guests and even more of our terrible jokes so we'll both see you then thanks for listening if you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and matt make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the Castbox app or your favorite podcasting platform we'd really appreciate that and if you haven't already you can download the free Castbox app where you'll find us as one of the Castbox original shows you can also visit the coin offering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies get caught up on some news see how your currency is performing and you can follow us on twitter at the coin offering finally you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at the the decrypting crypto podcast is a Castbox original show and its contents should not be used and are not intended as investment advice Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.